and the title of this session is The World in Which We Live. Everyone say, The World in Which We Live. The World in Which We Live. One of the dangerous things um, about the times in which we are living uh, is living on assumptions. You know, making assumptions. Uh, we cannot afford to live on assumptions. We need to call certain things as they are. If we don't call certain things as they are before we know it, we are not going to have the things that we value the most, which is our faith. There are a lot of times when we want to pretend that the world in which we live is not what it is. And that's very dangerous. And if we are to provide definition to our leadership, we, we must know the nature of our world. And uh, we must call it for what it is. Uh, we cannot afford, as Christians, to be lulled into a sense of indifference because things are so nice, things are so modern, things are so convenient. And uh, we begin to kind of lower the bar. The truth of the matter is that the forces of evil are out there every day trying to diminish the value of what we believe in as Christians. And I want to suggest to you that the kingdom of darkness has enough apologists for us to volunteer our services for it. There are enough people campaigning from society, from what we watch on television, from the schools, from everywhere, for us to actually volunteer our services as apologists for it. There's something very wrong when we put down our responsibility to call things as they are. Actually, if you read the Bible, if you read the Gospels the way we should, you will discover that Jesus was the most radical preacher that ever preached. If we were living during the times of Christ, we most probably would have found it difficult to follow him. I want you to picture this situation. One disciple comes. He calls one disciple and he says, follow me. And Jesus turns to this disciple and he says, let the dead bury the dead. When this disciple had asked to go and bury his own son. Jesus turns to this man. I mean, he had not asked to go and bury his uncle. He had not asked to go and bury his friend. He had asked to go and bury his father. And Jesus turns to this man and he says, Let the dead bury the dead. I wonder how we would have reacted. You call my father? What are you, what are you saying? I mean, how can you insult me like that? Are you saying that my people are dead people? What are you saying? This is my father's funeral that you're talking about. And, 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 you know, this man had not said, I'm not going to follow you. He had said to Jesus, let me go and bury my father. And then I'll come back and I'll follow you. And I mean, you know, we would have reacted and said, well, I mean, this is really, I can't believe he would say that to me. I told him I was coming. You know, I, all I needed to do was to go and bury my father. How would we have responded? See, Jesus liked calling things the way they were. 
If there was falsehood, he called it falsehood. If there was evil, he called it evil. When there was good, he called it good. That's what, that was the way it was in Jesus' ministry. That's the reason that you, you come as, as you come closer to the cross, there are less and less people following him. Because he kept saying these things which they couldn't take. They couldn't take it. In one instance in the book of John, he says, you know, he's talking about, uh, you know, he's saying, I am the bread of life and, you know, whoever eats me, you know, and this is how they understood it. I mean, whoever eats my flesh, uh, you know, is eating life. And these people are so offended. They're like, what are you saying? How can you say that? How can we eat you? And, and, and the scripture tells us that many of them followed him no more. Then he turned around and said to his disciples, are you also going to desert me? And Peter said, Lord, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. There are a few who recognize that truth is life. And this is where God wants us to get. There are a lot of things that are wonderful, convenient, modern and everything, but which are dead. Which God himself calls dead. And then there are those things which don't look appear like much, which the enemy really wants us to devalue. He wants us to devalue our experience with God, for instance. And, you know, these days, to be honest with you, it is becoming increasingly shameful in certain places to be a Christian. Because you will be derided for being a Christian. Whichever, politi- you know, whichever side you fall on, on the political thing, yeah, I think I would like to say this one. I watched Ron Reagan's interview with Larry King with disgust. Not Ronald Reagan the father. Ron Reagan the son. I think it was last week on Wednesday. Where he came out and he said, yes, I am an atheist. I don't believe in God. This is the son. He says, I will vote for anybody who will remove George Bush from power? Because have you seen that in this White House? No, they will. You know, I was talking about how everyone is wearing their faith on their sleeve, and then he goes on to talk about evolution and saying these people don't recognize that evolution is true. And he, he went on. I mean, I, I was sitting there stunned, stunned. You know what was very interesting? There were very few phone calls. Very few. And when I was sitting there, I was thinking, yeah, we, we Christians are afraid because if we say anything, this young man has just lost his father. It is so impolite. There are times for us to say what we believe. Because when Larry King invited him, he knew what he was doing. They were giving him a platform. And we as believers, when we have an opportunity to pick up the phone, and call someone on something, we need to. Because when we don't, the, the thing that remains in the minds and the hearts of the people is what Ron Reagan said. We need to understand the nature of the world in which we live. That evil has a platform which good doesn't necessarily have. And when we understand that, 
we will know what our responsibility is. So the nature in which we live, uh, the, world, the nature of the world in which we live, we need to really understand this world in order that we may provide definition for our leaders, leadership and people may know who we are. Are we Christians or aren't we Christians? Look here, this has got nothing to do with being American or Zimbabwean or anything. I'm talking about kingdom leadership. I'm talking about citizenship and responsibility. Rising up to the challenge of leadership in the kingdom. Amen. So, you know, some of these things, you know, excuse me if you get offended by what I just said about Ron Reagan, but I was offended as a Christian. I'm talking as a Christian. I'm not talking politically. I don't vote in this country. I'm a permanent resident. I'm not allowed to vote. So don't think that I'm campaigning for anyone. But I was offended as a Christian. And what that said to me that day is it drove home the point that really evil has a platform. And when evil ascends the platform, Christians want to pretend that nothing wrong is going on. Something is going on in the world in which we live. And the biggest problem is we have a difficult time calling things as they really are. And every day what the enemy does is he diminishes. He is working so hard and succeeding so much at devaluing our Christianity. Having us devalue it for ourselves actually. You know, we're, we're, sometimes, uh, you know, you know it, I think it's really time for us just to be free as Christians, to really do what we want, not because the world is looking at us and saying, look, look at what they are doing. See, I dress the way I like. And I think it's important for us to dress, in, even in the church, the way we like. Not because we have to prove a point. We don't have to prove a point that uh, we can really be, you know, all uh, official and everything. We don't have to. Neither do we have to prove, prove the point that we can be free. Because a person who is preoccupied with trying to prove that he is free is not free. And, and, and the reason is because there is something that the world has said to us and we have believed it. That we are really not free. That, you know, all kinds of things that the world says to us. And, and, and it pushes us every day to define ourselves in terms of the world. That's not the responsibility of a child of God. We are the salt of the earth. That's what the word of God says. Let's do it because we want to do it as Christians. Not because somebody who is an unbeliever came in here and said, did you see them? They were all dressed, they were, look here, a, a, a lot of people, there are some churches where you go, go to, you know, you, you know, I was laughing with, with Kimberly, you know, she was, she's wearing that hat, and I, I, yesterday I was laughing with her, saying, oh, are you going to do one of those, you know, she's, 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 uh, she's, she's my child in the Lord, and I said, are you going to do one of those African-American things and bring a hat with feathers, peacock feathers and everything? <laughs> If you want to wear peacock feathers because that's, uh, you, you feel good about that and everything, wait! You know, we don't have to do anything. To, if you are on, if you are constantly trying to prove that you are free, you are not free. You are not. If you have this burden to prove to the world, to, to, to demonstrate to the world, I wear, a, you know, when I want to wear a suit and tie, I wear a suit and tie. When I don't want to, I don't want to. It's got nothing to do with what the world thinks. It's what I feel. I, I want to honor God with you know, the way I look. You know, and I, so I do what I, what, what I feel. Is, and I want to free, feel free at the same time. So I'll do what I need to do to be free. 
So the world in which we live is putting so much pressure on us every single day to devalue what we are as children of God. Every day. And before we know it, what we will have will really not impact the world. It really won't. We are forced to dilute our music. We are forced to dilute everything. The moment you put the name Jesus, you know, if you take away the name Jesus, you have taken away the essence of our faith. If God inspires you to write a beautiful song about mountains where you don't mention the name Jesus because it's God who has actually inspired you to do that, that's fine. Do that. But I don't, you know, don't take it out because the world says take it out. You know, so we need to be, we need to understand what the agenda is in order that we may provide leadership, the right kind of leadership. Amen. The church doesn't have to be what the world wants it to be. Because the, church, the world will never be satisfied with the changes that we make. What the church ought to be is what God wants it to be. It can be very different from what we have made it. Accept that. But the church doesn't have to be what people who are outside there want it to be because we, you know, it never stops. The demand for you to lower the bar will never stop. Even when people can walk across it, they will still say, until they say remove it completely. And there will be no standard in the church of, of Jesus Christ. And, and, and you know, a lot of times when you start talking about this, these, these things, you know, people start getting uncomfortable because they say, well, you know, we think it comes from that real, you know, that background of, um, uh, of control. You know, no, I, I, that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is us doing what God wants us to do. The picture of that may be what you are doing already. If it is, wonderful. But let the pressure that we respond to not be the pressure of the world. Because the world in which we are living is a world which we need to change. Not a world which needs to change us. Amen. Now let's look at some things in here. First John 2, 15 verse 16. What does the scripture say in First John? It says, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, look, it, it, there are no exceptions there. Any man. It doesn't go into details about what they look like, whether they are black or white, whether they have a beard or don't have a beard, or whether they, it doesn't really go into any, whether they are educated or not, whether they are modern or not. It doesn't really go into that. All it says is that if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then it gives us the reason why we should not love the world. And, and I want you to see something about those reasons. Those reasons have nothing to do with whether the world is modern or not. Those reasons have nothing to do with whether it's a third world country or it's not. Those reasons have nothing to do with, with all of that. All it says is, love not the world, for any man love, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and then it lists the things. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So now, here is the challenge to us Christians 
who live in modernity, in civilized societies. We are not in Papua New Guinea. You know, we are, we are not dressed in goat skin covering our comely parts. We're all looking good. We all drive cars and everything. Now, the question that I have is, does this scripture apply to our world? Because was this for all time, really? Was this admonition for all time? Did it apply to our world? Which world did it, did it, did it, did it apply to? Does it apply just to Papua New Guinea, Iraq, Iran, Cote d'Ivoire? It doesn't apply to America. Does it apply to England? Does it apply to Italy? Does it apply to all these other places? Does it apply to the Vatican? You know, what does this scripture, what is it referring to? Which world? And if we can answer honestly to that, then we will respond appropriately to the call of leadership. The question that you have to ask yourself is, if the apostle who was writing this came here today, would he not find in our world some of the very same things that define this world, which he gave as reasons for people not to love that world? They would be worse. If those things are there or they're worse, then we cannot love this world. Because if we love this world, then the love of the Father... Now, this is the script, these are the scriptures speaking. Then the love of the Father is not in us. That's a radical message, but that's truth. Amen. It's a tough one, isn't it? Very tough. And if we are people who have no love for truth, if we can't take truth, we are going to find it very, very, very difficult to, believe us in the, to be believers in these days. Okay. We're becoming more radical as the sessions go on, aren't we? But we, we, we have to talk about this. We have to talk about these things. I reflect on that point for a little bit. The world in which we live is a world of... You know, we're, talk, you know, we're not living in uh, closed societies here. And I'm talking about this world. I'm not talking about the other closed world. And I'm talking about this world that we live in. It's a world founded on you know, democracy and everything. And what is the essence of democracy? It is the building of a civil society on liberal values. Not changing the nature of the world to meet God's approval. What is democracy? It's rule by the people for the people. God has nothing to do with it. Okay, let me not elaborate. I don't want to offend anyone too soon. Are we still here together? Are we still together, guys? Okay. I don't want anyone think, starting to think, well, you know, you know, perhaps you have read quite a bit about Zimbabwe. Like, well, he comes from a despot. You know, the, the, the president of Zimbabwe is a despot, so, you know, he's trying to transport. No, that's not what I'm talking about. And let's, let's just look at these things factually. Right? The essence of democracy is the building of a civil society, right? 
on liberal values. Not changing the nature of the world to meet God's approval. Hmm. All right. Civil society is civil to everything else except the unadulterated truth of the gospel. When you start talking truth, truth as it should be, like what Franklin Graham said after 9 11, he's always been a little bit rebellious, hasn't he? <laughs> he says, There is nothing peaceful about Islam. Nothing. And what did, what did people start saying? You know, that man, there are certain places right now, I mean, where, where, where he can't, you know, people will demonstrate. Simply because of what he said. There is nothing peaceful about Islam. Nothing. The moment he said that, you see, civil society stopped being civil. Okay? If he had kept quiet, it would have been okay. Civil society is very civil to you if you keep quiet about the truth of God's word. It will be very civil to you. People at work will be very civilized towards you if you don't start talking about Jesus. The court system will be very civil to you if you don't try to bring the Ten Commandments into the picture and all that. I mean, they will be very civil towards you. And they will be very civil towards even other religions. But when it comes to the unadulterated truth of the gospel, civil society is not civil. Mm. Okay. You see, we like pretending <laughs> as Christians. That we, we can actually build the kingdom from bricks baked in the kiln of liberal humanism. You know, we can actually build the kingdom. But what you will find in the word of God is that the, 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 the bricks that liberal humanism rejects are the ones actually that we use to build the kingdom. And, and, and Jesus is actually supposed to be the cornerstone you cannot build anything without the cornerstone. The structure will be unsound. It will be. So, we are challenged in God's word that whatever we build, it, you know, it, Jesus has to be the cornerstone. He has to be. In order for the structure to be, to be sound. But we want to pretend that we can, you know, we can, we can, you know, we can build the kingdom from from what, what is called tolerance, inclusiveness, and plurality as defined by liberal humanism. We cannot. Because when people say tolerance, they mean a very different thing from what you yourself would understand as tolerance. Mm. Let's move on. I want to get this particular session over quickly. The ultimate objective of the international liberal movement is to crown the God of humanism 
and establish a system that will ultimately be impenetrable to the gospel. Uh, consider that. We'll, 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 we'll elaborate in a little bit. The light of the gospel is not the same as the illumination of human progress. The former brings greater righteousness and the latter a higher standard of living. Mathematically, we have a higher standard of living than the people in Papua New Guinea. It doesn't automatically mean we are more moral or more righteous. Is that true? Tony will put this on your website so you, you, you know when in a more friendly in a more peaceful environment you can think about these things a little bit more but I would be remiss to finish this uh, conference here without talking about this because Christians need to be bold enough to be Christians again not Christians in quotation marks Christians as God defines it Believers, people who really follow Christ. And people who, the Bible tells us that we must not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. For it is the power of God that brings salvation. Nothing, tolerance does not bring salvation. Democracy doesn't. Modernity doesn't. We can have all the computers in the world and still be unrighteous. Amen? Now, this is one of my favorite subjects. See, <coughs> there are a lot of assumptions that we... You see, because we have the wrong idea that modernity and, and, and democracy has somehow made us more righteous. So, when, you know, there are, there are some countries that we give a pass. See, we can give a pass to England, for instance. Or to Italy. We can give a pass to them because, so, because man, they are democratic countries. They are civilized. They are modern. And even in our system of alliances sometimes, we, 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 we don't really understand, we, we don't bother to really find out what these countries' agendas are. Tony Blair's agenda is not my agenda as a believer. Because in Tony Blair's government, there are more than five openly practicing homosexuals. And they don't make any bones about what they believe in, in Britain. And if there is anything that, you know, they don't even have to be hostile to it. It's just being pushed out of the culture, particularly because Christians allow things like that to happen. It's the word of God. And you look at England, I mean, you look at it factually now, without emotion, and you start, start looking at what is happening to the church, you start looking at what is happening to believers, and you see an interesting picture. Same thing in France, same thing in Italy. One in 20 people go, bother to go to church anymore in France. One in 60 in England. That's compared to one in three in the United States. Since 1980, church attendance has dwindled by 30% in Britain. 
and the percentage of people claiming membership in a Christian denomination has declined in Belgium, Netherlands and France by 20%, 18% and 16% respectively. So what is happening? Civil society is becoming stronger. Democracy is becoming stronger. We are becoming more modern. We are having a higher standard of living. What is suffering? It's the gospel. And we like as Christians to pretend that this is not going on. This is what was in the New York Times. Frank Bruni wrote that all that is left of Christianity in Europe is a series of tourist trod monuments to Christianity's past. The monuments are there. The question is, do people still believe? I'm not saying that there are no Christians there. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there are no vibrant churches there. My goodness, some of the most vibrant churches are in, 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 in Europe. But they're in a minority. And it is hard to evangelize Europe. It is hard, hard, hard. Go and try and preach the gospel in Scotland. Or in London. Or in Rome. And you will discover just how hard it has become. And it is not just hard because of the attitudes of the people. There is the legislative environment that does not permit you to do certain things. In Sweden, if you speak in tongues and you are a minor, they will send you to a mental asylum. But the standard of living is very high. It's higher than in Uganda. So we need to be able to call things as they are. If we are to respond appropriately to the call of leadership. Woo, this one. The tough one. Is it time for the United States to adopt a more European view of what constitutes right and wrong? as suggested by Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy after the court had struck down a Texas law against sodomy. That's what he said. He said, it is time for the United States to adopt a more European view of what constitutes right and wrong. These guys ain't playing. They are everywhere. They are in the Supreme Court. They are private. the houses of parliament. They are everywhere. What does the word of God tell us? Remove not the ancient landmarks which thy fathers have set. Proverbs twenty two twenty eight. Okay. Let me not go on too long about what's out there. What are we supposed to do? When foundations are being destroyed, what are the uprights supposed to do? You've already gathered from what I said that the, the, one of the things that we ought to stop doing is pretending. When we see evil, we call it good. When we see good, we call it evil. We've got to stop pretending. If things are wrong, things are wrong. We've got to stop pretending. Because we will pretend so much. And then when some of these things are a reality which is firmly put in place and is haunting us, that's when we start getting excited. Say, oh, you know, why, why is it that you know, we're not allowed to do this? Why is it that we're not allowed to do that? And any time when a Christian does something that is positive, 
we have to watch it because we have a habit of allowing ourselves to be involved in this useless discussion about well you know he must have he must have political motives you know, why is he really doing that? There must be, there must be a reason. There must be a, it's got something to do with his political agenda. And do you know something? You are always going to be able to find a wrong motive in the good that anyone does. If you look hard enough. Either they will be doing it for their church. Either they, you know, there's always going to be something that you can find. Well, why is he doing this? He must be doing this so that his church grows. Why is this particular person doing this? Well, he must be doing this because he wants to get re-elected. Uh, why is this person doing this? You can always find a reason. And then, after you, know, you have thrust at the mouth and, 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 and withstood something that you are not supposed to withstand, it opens the door for the enemy to do what he wants. And then when he does what he wants, we jump up and down and like, why are we not allowed to do this and so on? It's important for us to make the world understand that we are not apologetic about what we believe. We are not. We are not ashamed of what we believe. We, we don't make excuses for being Christians. There is nothing wrong with believing that homosexual marriages are not of God. There is absolutely nothing wrong with believing that abortion is not of God. There is nothing. There is no reason for anyone to be ashamed, and there is no reason for us to be walking around being apologetic about things like that. Amen. When foundations are being destroyed, we need to educate ourselves on the true nature of the international liberal movement and deploy appropriate measures to defeat it. What is the true nature of the international liberal movement? You know, a lot of us complain. Some of the most generous, I remember during the, the, uh, the Rhodesian War, the, the people who were most generous to the Rhodesian War were the Soviet Union, the Scandinavian countries, and China. Then when Mugabe became, when we, we took our independent, we became independent, then Mugabe declared that we're going to have a Marxist state. Well, what do you expect? If that's where he has been getting the help, what do you expect? Huh? If we are absent, if we, if we are absent from a situation which needs our involvement, evil comes in and directs that situation the way they want. What, what do you expect? What do you, what do you want the men to do? If those are the people who have been helping him, those are the people that he is going to thank with loyalty. So many times we are absent from a situation, but we want the benefit of the resolution of, a, of that situation when it was resolved by somebody else who had a different agenda from us. That's the reason why you will find, you know, a lot of times we, we froth at the mouth and we get so excited about the United Nations, you know, this is an evil uh, thing and, uh, and all that. How many people know that it's going to be, it's very difficult even if America doesn't want to give money to the United Nations for it to do so. Because there are areas the United Nations gets into that even America wants the United Nations to get into. So when America then comes, when the United Nations then starts supporting things like the distribution of uh, um, family planning tablets and stuff like that, it becomes very difficult to then say, well, why are you doing that? 
Because if they are the ones who are responding to problems with infant mortality, huh, then they, they think they have the right to address the situation in its entirety. It doesn't matter what moral damage they are doing. So our absence from a situation which needs to be resolved by us so we can leave the Christian imprint on the solution leaves only the enemy to leave an imprint on that solution. Is that true? I believe it is. So we need to educate ourselves on the true nature of the international liberal movement and deploy appropriate measures to defeat it. We really need to put the church on a war footing and trim the fat, arm ourselves with the sword of truth to fight against the marginalization of the faith. I, I really think, and perhaps, you know, I might say this once again, as somebody who is, doesn't have a building and we're currently meeting in a school, so, you know, it's very easy to be misunderstood. There's nothing uh, necessarily holy about not having a building. So I hope you understand. And we are believing God for a building ourselves. And you know, our, our choir was singing here this morning. I said, well, it just sounds so good in here. Wish we had our own place, which is like this, Pastor Byron. Can we just take this and put you in a school instead? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, so this comment has got nothing to do with that. But I believe that our fixation with building a $40 million building, a $20 million building, a $10 million building, if, if, you know, when, 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 when really we are not really having an impact on the moral environment around us, there's something very wasteful about that. And there's something that I think just angers God so much. And we can be left with our form of charismatic worship without the presence of God. I really believe that. So what we need to do is to really redefine what our priorities are as a church. It's wonderful to have a building. It's wonderful to have a building which will last for a hundred years. They have had buildings in Europe which have lasted more than a hundred years and they are empty. And they are being turned, some of them, into nightclubs because of the acoustics. It's not about the building, it's about the people. It's about the hearts that we need to reach. So every day we are seeing this diminishing of our faith and we accept it in the meantime, we, we direct our resources towards things that we don't need to direct our resources to. We really need to put the church on a war footing and trim the fat and arm ourselves with the sword of truth to fight against the marginalization of the faith. Now listen, the, the, the sword of truth is the word of God. And, and I was thinking about this yesterday. There is no way that you can be comfortable wielding the word of God, which is the, word of, the sword of truth, if you yourself don't have a love for it. Because one of the things that I found out in the, in the, in the Bible is that, uh, you know, the sword of truth must be turned to you first before it's turned to others. That's why the Bible tells us, you know, don't, don't talk about, you know, the, 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 uh, the what? In your neighbor's eye when they say. How does the scripture put it? The, a speck in a brother's eye when there is a beam in, when there is a log in yours. Don't do that. What you need to do is deal with your situation first. 
So you turn the sword of truth to yourself first. In fact, when Jesus said to that young man, look, go and bury your, don't go and bury your father. You must follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. What he was doing is, look here, what I want you to do, first of all, is to turn the sword of truth onto yourself and deal with certain personal situations first. This is the most important thing. You must actually be separated from that world first and follow me. That's the only way that I can train you to be effective for the kingdom. If you turn the sword of truth on yourself first. So, if we are going to wield the sword of truth in this world, we need, first of all, to actually accept it. You can't wield a sword. I mean, there's no way that you can go out there and be fighting with a word that you yourself don't receive. You know, you can't. Because, I mean, you know... you, you, you're going to be hypocritical about it, but not only that, you're, you're going to be very, very uncomfortable doing warfare. Because it's really total warfare. You, you have to really fight. Because they'll come this way and then you pull out another word. And they come this way and you have to have it. You actually have to have it in your arsenal. So we need to put the church on a war footing, trim the fat, arm ourselves with the sword of truth to fight against the marginalization of the faith. And the faith is being marginalized. I saw Larry King yesterday again. This time he was interviewing a comedian called John Stewart. And I watched, I mean, there are some people who make so much fun of God. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable what people say. And sometimes you want to you say, see, God, God is so merciful. Because sometimes you, you, you want to say, why, why doesn't God just strike them dead? If it was up to me, I mean, why doesn't God just strike them dead? What's wrong with God? Why is it that he's not easily offended? I mean, you know, you know that mayor from New York when he announced that, yeah, we are allowing uh, homosexual marriages in New York, uh, in that little town in New York, or that guy from San Francisco. You know, and, and, and you hear this, and Rosie O'Donnell. Who? And, and, and the, the, this story where Melly Etheridge, what's her first name? Was getting married. Getting married. And Tom Hanks, the most popular man in America, was there too. And you look at that and step by step, these things are being made more and more acceptable and we as Christians are the ones who are becoming apologists for it. By our silence. There are certain things which are just wrong. They don't start wrong when your son brings Steve to your house. And some of us are preoccupied with the wrong things. Totally preoccupied with the wrong things. Busy fighting against, you know, if, if somebody who is, who is a, where, where is my daughter? Danielle, stand up. So there is, stand up. She doesn't want to stand up. She, know, she, knew, she doesn't want me to, uh, that's my beautiful daughter. Okay, you can stand, sit down. <laughs> Father's nightmare <laughs> is when, see, one day we were at our house, and it was around 10 in the evening. And the doorbell rang. 
open the door and there were these two or three guys students at the same school that my daughter goes to she goes to Charlotte Christian say hey Miss Manika say hey <laughs> are you Danielle's dad yes is Danielle home said yeah she's home Oh, we, we, we don't, we're just visiting a friend who lives just behind there, so we just thought we would stop by. So I said, okay, come in. <laughs> I came in, and I stayed, stayed in the room. Uh, and they were talking to my daughter and everything. They were just young people from the school. I hope so. <laughs> just some classmates. No, they weren't really classmates of hers. They'd come to visit a, a guy behind there. Even if the facts were true of what they said to me. It is still every, the father of every daughter's nightmare. How did I put that? That's strange English. It's still something of a nightmare. Okay. Now, the reason why it was a nightmare, it's, it's, it's a nightmare, it's, it's just a difficult thing for fathers to get used to their little girls getting married. I prayed a lot for Pastor Byron in the past few weeks. I don't know if you failed my prayers or not, Pastor, but, but I did try. <laughs> it's just a difficult thing, but I know that was, you know, God was in it. God is a good God. There's something that I didn't tell you about these boys. How many were they? Were they three or two? Three. They were all white. <gasps> three white boys coming to see my daughter. Some of us will be fighting this battle which is such an irrelevant battle as far as God is concerned. And we fight that battle and we're not fighting the right battle. That daughter will su- surprise you and bring Eve who is the same color. Which is the perversion here? You know, you, you've got to approach these things the way God approached it when Miriam and Aaron withstood Moses because of his Ethiopian wife. And there was silence in the church. Let's say amen. Amen. Because when God, when these people, Miriam and Aaron, withstood Moses because of his Ethiopian wife, and started bringing some other issues about him, you know, is he the only prophet? But the reason why they withstood him, according to these scriptures, was because of the Ethiopian wife. And then they brought up this thing about, is he the only prophet and stuff like that. Miriam was struck with leprosy. Why would God defend something that he is against? Why would he? Hmm. So we are preoccupied with things that really we shouldn't be preoccupied with. Instead of understanding that the battle these days must be against the perverse spirit that is on the earth. We instead are busy firing away at things that, oh, you know, that cannot happen, not in my lifetime. You know, I can't believe my daughter disappointed me so much, or my son disappointed Where did she, I mean, we, no one has ever done it in our family. And we're going to be the first one to have this son-in-law who looks like this, and so on. And what's going to happen to the children, and so on and so forth. And God doesn't care about that. 
We are fighting the wrong battle. We'll do this again here. Put the church on a war footing and then be proactive in creating opportunities to bring the Christian worldview and practices into the marketplace. There's something that we need to take very seriously. Is the call that God places on our lives, which may even be an untraditional call. Uh, you know, uh, if God has called you to write, write. If God has called you to sing, sing. If God has called you to act, act. If God has called you to make film, make films. I want to watch movies. I like watching movies. There's nothing out there, you know, to watch these days. You know, you, you, you can be watching television on the supposedly most family-friendly channel. There is nothing family friendly about their family friendliness. None whatsoever. And they say family programming. Their definition of family is very different from mine because now they are saying that Rosie O'Donnell and her, her wife are a family. So when they say family friendly, they are including that too. So there is nothing family friendly anymore. We can't pretend. This is the worst thing that is happening in, the, in Christendom. Pretending that things are what they are not. I don't know why we do it. I don't know why... I mean, what, what, God must be so frustrated with us. Why do we pretend that things are what they are not? Why? Why is it our responsibility to apologize on behalf of a fallen world? Why? You know... Hmm. We're almost done with this session. Because of what is at stake, we must forego the luxury of arguing against truth if we are to wield it as a weapon. We must forego the luxury. It's a luxury to argue against truth. What you do with truth, you see, look here. There are some things which need to be resolved in the life of a Christian. In the life of a you know, the moment you accept Christ, then you must accept that whatever he says is right. Even if you don't like it. Okay? Even if you don't understand it. Because we don't function in life generally by understanding. I am not mathematically inclined at all. I, I, I couldn't be an engineer. I, 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 I would, you know, when I opened the car, there was a time when I, you know, I would, uh, I would try to fix my car with, uh, with, with some success, but those were minor things like changing the brake pads. I can kind of comprehend how that works. Beyond a certain point, my mind, I mean, I just don't, I don't, I really don't understand much about how a car works beyond a certain point. But I drive it. I really, I drive it. It takes me wherever. You know, I, uh, look, I don't have to understand it. If it is, if it is true, it is true. If, if, if it is true that I put my key in there and I turn it, I, I, don't, I don't understand all that. I mean, how they do the wiring, all the electricals and so on. So I put my key in there and I turn it and something tells something to turn. I, I really can't understand how a starter can turn a whole engine. I don't understand it. It's so small. And you look in the starter, there's nothing. There's, there's nothing in there, actually. Something to do with, you know, you complete the circuit and something happens to the magnets which are in there. But the magnets are just pieces of wire coiled around. I don't understand. I really don't understand it. So you turn the key. This thing turns. And you put it in gear. You know, you, you, 
an automatic transmission befuddles me completely. Because manual transmission is complicated enough. But how a car knows that when you get to a certain speed, right now is the time to go... I don't understand how that works, but it works. It works. It works. And don't even try to explain to me about flying. Because somebody tried to explain to me, says, well, you know, the wind goes over the aerolons and whatnot and stuff like that. That stuff went completely over my head. I still cannot believe that a thing that can carry trucks and 300 people can be flying up there in the sky when there's nothing holding it. I, I don't understand it. Call me scientifically challenged. I accept it. But you know what? When I want to go to Zimbabwe, I get on a plane and I go home. <laughs> Amen. So there's something that needs to be established in the life of a believer. If you are a child of God, whatever you have in here is true. And when we don't forego the luxury of arguing against truth, we reduce our churches into you know, places of pontification, philosophy. You know? Our Bible studies into philosophizing. And stuff like our everything that we do, you know. Or somebody comes this week and preaches a good message. Oh my goodness! Did you, did you hear what so and so preached this, this this week? Right? It was powerful. And then someone comes up with something. Oh man! But yeah, that was powerful. But you should hear this new revelation now. You should hear. And then we start arguing back and forth. Ah, but that was not right. We start arguing back and forth, and are never able to counter what the enemy is doing. And we cannot advance the purposes of the kingdom if are afflicted with the Asaph or Jeremiah disease. In Psalm 73, Asaph, you know, you can go home and read Psalm 73. It's envious of the rich. Couldn't believe that, you know, the people who were wicked could prosper like that. And what about, what about me, Lord? It's, uh, surely I have, I have cleansed my, my, my heart in, in, in vain. Because these people who are wicked prosper. And I am a child of God. And I'm having so many difficulties, you know, the the checkbook is not balancing and I, I, I can't buy a new car but I'm a child of God and, and we are grumbling every day about the things that we don't have that, that we should have Jeremiah was afflicted with that disease and in fact if you have your Bible I want you to go there real quickly Jeremiah 12 1 we are almost done Jeremiah 12 1 Jeremiah the prophet was afflicted with this disease and God said something to him which, which I think is very powerful. So this is Jeremiah during his Asaph moment. Watch out for these Asaph moments. Make sure that they don't become a lifestyle. That envying the rich becomes you know, something that is, you know, consumes you every day. Those who would have money won't have it. Because, uh, you know, money has a tendency to fly when it is your preoccupation. I want to make money. When it is your preoccupation, it flies away. You know? Unless God actually tells you, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make money. He will make it possible for you. But if it's just something that you just want all the time and you're preoccupied with it, you will never be rich. So Jeremiah 12 says... He starts off with uh, something very, you know how it is when we come to God and we have a beef with God. We start with this highfalutin religious stuff. <laughs> Righteous art thou, O Lord, 
When I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. <laughs> Says you are righteous, but let me talk to you about your injustice. <laughs> you are righteous, oh God, but let me talk to you about how unrighteous you are in terms of treating some. Double talk from the mouths of the believers. The reason why we're saying that so God is good all the time because God is good all the time. He's always good. Righteous are thou, O Lord, but let me talk to you about how evil you are. Yet let me talk with you of thy judgments. Wherefore does the way of the wicked prosper? Why? That them people who don't believe in you, God, have so much money. And we, your children, don't have any money. Why? Now I have been serving you so long and, you know, I have been in the United States for 10 years and I still don't have money in my bank account. I arrived in the United States with $300 which ran out after three weeks and now I don't even have $300 in my account. But I've been doing this for 10 years. Why? And I look at the other person who doesn't believe and some of the people that I left in Zimbabwe who don't even believe, now they are millionaires. And I, I obeyed the call of God and I came here. Don't have nothing there or here. <laughs> Why? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Asaph moment is a very dangerous moment. You start seeing people who are tormented as if they are happy. The ones that deal treacherously with God are happy. <coughs> Thou hast planted them. Yes. They have taken root. They grow. Yeah. They bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. Near in their mouth, far from their reins. You don't restrain them from doing anything. But thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast, hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. Why don't you kill them? You know me. <laughs> Perhaps then that scripture which says the wealth of the uh, wicked is laid up for the just would become true. If you kill them, then I can take their stuff. What's wrong, Lord? What's wrong? Then God says, listen to the answer. I love this answer. Okay. Go to verse 5. If thou hast run with the footmen and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? I have not called you to ordinary faith. If you are so easily taken, shaken by envy, envying the wicked, what are you going to do when the disparities are even more? When I expect you to stand because the disparities are even more. But you are supposed to stand in faith and say, I believe that God is good even when you don't have anything. What are you going to do? You are definitely going to curse God. Amen. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when there's really a flood, what are you going to do in the swelling of the Jordan? What are you going to do? 
Because things are going to get tougher, but God expects us to stand in faith. As long as we are afflicted with the ace of disease, we can't advance the purposes of the kingdom. We're going to be coming to God and just questioning Him, questioning His goodness. The self-counseling efforts of a schizophrenic leadership do not serve to advance the kingdom. We must make a clear choice for righteousness. Elijah challenged the people of Israel. The children of Israel said, How long shall you hold between two opinions? If God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Make a choice. And that's what God wants us to do. In Joel 2.28, this is the last thing. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In these days will I pour out my spirit. The Holy Spirit that God pours out in the last days introduces a new dance. And it's a dance of different generations. It's a dance between different ethnic groups. Because, you see, He will pour out His Spirit on everyone. Everyone. So I will be able to dance with my sister. Because she's my sister in the Lord. She has the Spirit that is in me. She may be Caucasian. That doesn't matter. The Spirit of God that is in me is the same Spirit that is in her. And then the Bible says, your young men, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. There shall be an intergenerational dance. The old men who dream dreams and the young men who see visions, they shall be together. Because what matters to God is not the issues between the generations. What matters to God is that we actually advance the purposes of the kingdom. And if it means reaching across the generations, if it means reaching across the color line, if that's what it will take, let's do it. And then he says, your servants, upon the servants and upon the handmaids, in those days, will I pour out my spirit. If you read it in the, in, the, in, the, in the living Bible, last sentence, and I will pour out my spirit even on your slaves, men and women alike, right? That's a very interesting scripture. This is what we have to do. Uh, this is my last point. We have to accept the different people that God is going to touch as being co-laborers with us. And people who we must honor, even though they may be slaves, if the Spirit of God has been poured on them, it has been poured on them. What matters is what God has done in their lives. Not what we think of them. When we start having that attitude in these last days, and there is this generational shuffle, you know, this dance, this new dance which includes... Listen, we can... I've been one of those people who have said this. See, if you, are, if you are a preacher, there are many times, you know, it may be after a few years you preach something, then you come back and you're like, why did I say that? You may even regret it a day after you preached it. It doesn't always take years. But you see, we, we can talk a lot about the new generation until we miss the point.
We can defend the rights of the old generation until we miss the point. We can defend the, the, our, our desire to meet by ourselves until we miss, miss the point. We can de- defend our way of worship until we miss the point. What God wants is not for us to be preoccupied with defending things that we don't really have to defend. What God wants is to be open to the things that He is doing. So when God is pouring out His Spirit upon all... Because this is really what it, it is going to take. Because someone who is different from you knows something about the battle that you don't know. And you need their input into your life to address certain things that you yourself do not know. And if you don't receive them, then you are not going to have what it takes to actually withstand the enemy where you must withstand him. This generational shuffle, intercultural shuffle, is something that is very critical. And it's a last day's reality according to that scripture. God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. So what we must do when foundations are being destroyed, we must recognize what God is doing and get on board.